You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pot seat and tray table are in their upright and locked position. The airlock is sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the Functional Nerdverse. Patrick! You've been weeks in your mountain chalet now. <laughs> that's that's there? thanks to the the uh, timey wimey wibbly wobbly effects of podcasting two episodes in Indeed. a row. Indeed. Um, so we invited into our timey wimey wibbly wobbly uh, time universe here. We have Andrea Hairston. Uh, it's so wonderful to have you on, Andrea. How are you doing? I'm I'm just really jazzed to be here. Um, and I, I wish I were, you know, maybe like in mountain time. So like enjoying <laughs> yeah. like a writing retreat. So, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty good time of year for that. Although I understand you got some snow still. Yes, there is snow on the ground all around me in the mountains here. Yeah, snow is coming here, but it's just not a pretty sight. So mm, it's no, New England no. spring snow, mud season oh, so snow. Oh, so it's really just snow that is eagerly waiting to become mud and yep. sand runoff. Yep. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Ugh. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm just south of Chicago, and so we ah. also specialize in ugly snow. Right. Um, we're you know we're really good at it, except we go the the salt based ugly snow. Oh, this um, right, yeah. right. Yeah. So not not my favorite, but oh well. Um, but spring so- is coming. Spring is coming. Is yes, I've seen some of the daffodils peeking up, um, and daffodils, as we know, are kind of like the morons of the flower world. <laughs> um, they, they they believe fully and with great conviction that even one day above fifty degrees means it's go time. Yes. Um, so yeah, the daffodils in the neighborhood have been coming up for a while, and now they are looking like they've regretted their decisions. <laughs> um, <so> yes. <laughs> right. Oh well. So we've got you on here. I mean, this has been. Gosh, I mean, 2020 has been, not 2020, but like, well, I mean, yes, 2020 was a big year for for all sorts of things. But I'm thinking in particular about um, you have been in just the last year, one of the MCs for the Hugo Awards ceremony at Worldcon back in D.C. Um, And now we have Redwood and and Wildfire, which is is not only out in the world for almost two months now uh, by the time this uh, episode broadcasts, but it's actually having its second uh, debut into the world here, which is sort of a wonderful landmark to have hit. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm just so thrilled. I, I wasn't expecting it. it, it I, I got the deal in 2020 in that horrible pandemic time. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Lee Harris at, at tour.com um, said, yeah, you know, I'll buy your whole backlist and put it back out because <laughs> it was on a small press. And now we'll just yeah. launch it starting, you know, next in February. And I was like, okay, wow. So yeah, very let's exciting. Go. Let's do the thing. So yeah. that, I mean, I have no experience with the um, either firsthand or even actually talking to other writers um, with having your sort of back catalog reemerge into the world. And I have to wonder, kind of thinking about what Redwood and Wildfire is, that it's this coming of age story that's set in turn of the century, 19th century into 20th century. 
of our um, and the American West and um, what's going on with the characters and their identities and, and everything. Does it feel like it hits differently now, 11 years after it first came into the world? Uh, well, that's a funny question uh, because since it's a historical novel and history is usually about the present, so 11 yeah. years ago, I, you know, I think the reason that it was on a small press, because I don't think my writing is better, because <laughs> we didn't change anything in the book. Um, but yeah. at the time, people were afraid that no one would want the story. So I got very strange responses like, this is so well written, I read to the end, but we can't publish it. Um, uh, you know, so the climate has shifted. Um, around the book, um, so that now people are interested and hungry for these stories. I think they they always were there, um, but um, some publishers didn't know about those people, um, and also um, people themselves didn't know they would be interested. Um, and now, oh my goodness, yeah, I do want to read that. Um, so I, I think that that kind of um, shift in what stories we want as a huge nation um has happened um and so uh so therefore it it hits now in a way that it didn't in 2011 even though it like won awards because oh wow this is a really great book um uh now it's like oh my gosh uh i never knew this history wow is there more um is is the kind of response i'm getting it's really interesting because we hear people talk about um, books that are ahead of their time uh, in a lot of ways. And I think that when when people use that term, they mean different things. Like that, that oh. there's a vision in the book that is that anticipates a different sort of future or that there's a, there's a voice to the writing that is pushing boundaries in a certain way. But I think this is, you know, Redwood and Wildfire is an ahead of its time story, I think in the sense that the the publishing world needed to catch up to it needed to build the confidence that it needed in in the audience being there if that yeah. makes, i don't know if i phrase that the way that yeah. makes sense but yeah no i think when i wrote it um that was the big question who's the audience for this and there was an uncertainty around that like oh there's no audience for this um and uh you know, some people were crass. <laughs> they were like, wow, these are weird characters. And I was like, this is like a romance or or I have a barn, let's do a show. So it's a very, you know, on some levels, typical story. Yeah. But um, but on other levels, you know, the, the, the cultural reality of the characters um, and, the, you know, the struggles that they have to put up their show um, yeah. haven't been featured in stories before as much. So, yeah. uh, so therefore, it seemed weird when, in fact, it wasn't weird. You know, it, yeah. it, it, it was unfamiliar. And we take the familiar for the real. So we think what we've seen before is real. So actually, I, I even had people who say, well, this, you know, this isn't, you know, real. I mean, I'm writing fantasy, but whatever. This isn't real or realistic or whatever. And I'm like, well, I'm a, you know, a theater scholar. So this, you know, I read all this stuff. I've done the research. Yeah. I've, you know, this is, you know, I went and saw films um, and, you know, I know the plays. I've seen the, the you know, the advertising for plays at the time. I, I this is real in the, you know, this, these sorts of things happened. Um, yeah. but, um, but we don't know our history. 
uh, generally speaking, we, you know, we don't. And then when we discover that it's not what we think, we think, that oh well you must be wrong because you know of course I know my history, um, mm-hmm. I, you know which you know like I'm constantly shocked by what I think is true, uh, you know from my present that has nothing to do with the history that I discover. I think you know also let's I mean let's let's be real about this. I think there's a certain code that people speak when they say that these these characters are weird or these um, this this story is unexpected. And I think sometimes that code is for um, these characters are not like people I'm used to thinking about. Right. They're not the you know, familiar. They're not right. And so because I, I have decided that these people don't have stories or don't belong in the stories that I read that when I, when I encounter them, I don't know what to do with the cognitive dissonance of here is a compelling character and a compelling situation that I want to explore, but wait, um, they are different from me and they are, they represent a world I know very little about. And what do I do with that, that discomfort? And I think that sometimes there's that sort of shrug that says, well, I mean, that therefore there is not a market and therefore there is not an audience. Uh, right. I mean, so since this is an African-American woman and a Seminole Irish man, and they are living in the turn of the 20th century um, with clear, you know, historical restraints on what um, they um, were supposed to, you know, envision for themselves. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, so I think um, the weird is that, oh my God, I don't know about, you know, lower class <laughs> Irish Seminole uh, dudes and their their uh, desires. And can I find myself in those desires? Um, can I find myself in their struggles? Um, uh you know, that becomes the question that the reader, um, you know, is like, oh, okay, uh, you know, can I do that? Um, and I think the publisher then is worried that readers will say, no, I can't, as opposed to, yes, I can. Um, so I think yeah. at times publishers um, undervalue readers, you know, yeah. uh, are more They're afraid. Them to make a leap. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I want to give you a chance because you, you are a scholar of theater. Um, you have a background as a playwright um, and, and as a teacher and as, as a researcher. And so I want to give you the space to just go off here because I have a lot of respect for people who know a lot about stuff and can just hold court on it. You uh-huh. mentioned before um, people not knowing the history of these sorts of performances and things. And we, yeah. we need to make sure that our listeners are here with us in what uh, Redwood and Wildfire is that we have two characters, uh, the African-American woman who practices and, and understands hoodoo conjure, uh, hoodoo conjure magic, and uh, Aiden, who's a seminal Irish man, who are on a journey together. And in the course of that journey, they are part of um, a sequence of, of shows and, and theatrical productions of various mm-hmm. kinds. I was delighted to discover for the literal first time in my life, the descriptor... Um, multi-ethnic horse opera, which I didn't even know was a thing. <laughs> as, as a, a multi-ethnic horse opera, which apparently is a term that one reviewer deployed in an effort to describe what is Buffalo Bill's sideshow. So, yes. Um, and, yes. Yeah. And so let's walk me from your perspective as uh, as a scholar of these things and as, as a practitioner of, of yeah. um, theater itself through like how 
How does theater and how does performance play a big role in what this story is? Well, in the 19th century, I mean, we're trying to come up with the story of America. Like, who who or what are we? That's what theater is always about. Like, who are we? Like, it's, you know, the search for our identity, the search for our values, the search for what matters, the search for uh, what's fun. Um, and so, and America was like, you know, filled with people from all over the world, as well as people who were like from right here. Um, And Mm -hmm. so rather than actually having everybody tell a story of America, we get a dominant form, right? We get a master narrative that has, uh, you know, minstrelsy was, you know, blackface minstrelsy was the dominant form from about the 1830s to like even, you know, the jazz singer, (laughs) which is a film in the 1920s. So, um, and and in this performance form, um, you know, white people put on blackface, uh, actually mostly white men put on blackface, and they could play anyone. They could play um, people from Africa. They could play Native Americans. They could play Asian people. They could play Irish people who weren't considered white until the end of the uh, uh, 19th century. <laughs> so they could play um, anyone who, who was not them because they were the, you know, they had that capacity. They had that depth to their characters that they can include uh, all of these other um, people and then defined uh, America as themselves with these others as, uh, you know, almost curiosities, um, stereotypes, rigid characters who were kind of limited and stuck to certain roles. Um, this was also done in Wild West shows. So, and you didn't have to do blackface then. You could actually, at that point with Buffalo Bill, you could get um, people to play themselves as stereotypes. Same thing happens at the end of the 19th century with um, African-Americans. They, you know, they can put on blackface and play the black stereotypes that someone else had created um, for them as like, you. this is who you are. Um, so what you have at the turn of the century is um, people trying to redefine their image in the American story by taking control of those uh, plays or eventually films. So you get yeah, so um, going to, we we the lens through which the stories are interpreted. Yeah, right. So you get Native Americans like there was one um, uh, princess. I can't. Oh, what was her name? Well, she she decided that she she's in Squaw Man, which is a a play, a film. It's you know made several times in which she commits suicide so her white lover can take their mixed race child back to England and live happily ever after. Um, so that was that was her great moment in film. But then she took that money and and she and her husband made films of their own. They, uh, you know, about their lives, about, um, you know, Native people and their villages and their turmoils and the things that they wanted or, or, you know, the things that mattered to them. Um, uh, African-Americans did the same thing, like, oh, okay, so we will play um, these these minstrel characters. But eventually you get Williams and Walker um, creating their own musical stories in which they um, took back 
their images. Um, and Ada Overton Walker is one of the people that I dedicate the book to. Um, uh, she um, performed dressed as a man uh, and she didn't have to wear a blackface and she could perform men who were um, positive, who were intelligent, who were, um, you know, amazing uh, without, you know, any problem because the women could do that when the men had to be more buffoons. Um, so I was just very inspired by that and by the fact that women at the turn at the beginning of the film era made as, you know, directed films in great numbers. It's only when film becomes the studio system and later that women are like removed from that position. Um, so that there were more women film directors, you know, in 1914 or 13 than there are now. Um, so all of that um, inspired me. Pre-code. Y- yes. Yes. Pre-code. Yes. So when, when the Pre-code. Hollywood code hit, that's, that's when a lot of the, the female yep. directors, lost their jobs and just weren't. lost. I mean, literally in droves and yeah. they had, yeah. they had helped to define what we think of as film. I mean, they were inventing it with everyone else, but now we forget them and their films turned to dust literally. I mean, so the film stock it's, was volatile. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. It's, Tracy? it's, it's horrible. It's horrible when you look at the uh, pre-code Hollywood versus post-code Hollywood. Yeah. Right. So I wanted to um, uh, have someone who, you know, is going to make an, another kind of story. I was really interested in that. Um, and that we don't know about these people because we lost their films and we didn't talk to them. Right. So we actually talked to men. Um, so yeah. we talked to Burt Williams. So, you know, there's there's much more on what um men were thinking at the time there's hardly anything and you know and i like poured over lots of of documents and stuff there's not enough on women so to me i'm a speculative writer so um i'm like okay i i will speculate um so i taught a course on um minstrelsy and wild west shows and all those sorts of things and how what an impact they had on um american culture and um so and i had lots of students and they were doing great research and we were all like wow this is amazing all the stuff we were discovering um but there was a a current of like i would never have played in one of these tacky um minstrel shows where i acted like a fool or i would never have been in a wild west show where i played an indian whooping and you know like played indian right um and i thought really Uh, excuse me, like we're theater people, right? And we generally play the roles that are at hand, <laughs> uh, you know, so, um, so. Um, or, you know, you play the roles that are at hand. Yeah. And if you do that enough, then you have the opportunities like the, the anecdote you gave before, then you can take that money once you've made some bank. Exactly. And start to turn it into what advances your own vision. Right. But and to so. To some extent, there's, there, yeah. There's yeah, this industry so, that sort of wants you to play there by their rules. Play by the rules. So it's very hard. You either do those roles or you don't do theater, right? So it's very hard. I mean, musicians were different. They had a different story. So there were many women who dressed as men and sang on the on the like the blues um, circuit. Um, very wonderful, um, interesting um, performers uh, who who then who got away with all kinds of of great things. Um, so I was also inspired by the musicians who had a slightly different path because they um, could, you know, uh, 
they could get away with more. Um, so, uh, uh, so I was inspired by them. And a lot of the musicians, though, end up in the films. So I, I had like a rich source to draw on when I was coming up with my story. Um, so I used all of that. Um, and I, at first, I wasn't even going to write this book because I thought I don't know enough and I can't know enough. Um, but I had the voice of my... Um, my grandparents, my great aunt, who would have been, you know, living at this time. And they're like, well, you know, you're a scholar, do the research. And then you write science fiction and fantasy. So speculate. I literally had like my great aunt's voice telling me, well, speculate, dear. Come on. I want the book. I want to read it. Where's the book? Where's the book? Like, do it. Don't be like, you can't be shy. Right. Get, you know, get out of your own way. Um, You know, thinking that I had to know everything. Um, that's not possible, dear. We know that's not possible. We forgive you for your errors and like, <laughs> like, but just get the story out, get the story out. So, um, isn't it, isn't it, isn't it interesting and sad that a hundred years on, give or take, you still have yeah. artists doing exactly what you're describing. They will take on a role. They will make an album. They will do something to put money in the bank. And then they will form their own production company to do the kinds of things that they want to do. That they want. Yes. Yes. So this has been, this is an ongoing tactic of artists. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I teach a class in science fiction and fantasy theater and film. So um, we look at, uh, we just watched Brother from Another Planet by John Sayles. And uh, oh, yeah. it's a it's a wonderful indie film that he made, but he was also like writing for Jurassic Park and Piranha. I mean, so he would do scripts for, you know, Roger Corman. I mean, you know, he did all kinds of things. And then he would take that money and make his films. Um, Julie Dash, independent filmmakers, you know, frequently do that. Julie Dash did um, Daughters of the Dust in the 90s. Um, so lots of people made like films on their credit cards, <laughs> um, or like sales worked, um, in Hollywood ventures and script doctored or whatever, and then created their own films. Um, even someone like Guillermo del Toro makes Pan's Labyrinth, you know, um, not as a Hollywood film, but, you know, I want to do this. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, some critics were like, why are you doing it in Spanish? <laughs> Why, why, you know, why not have them speak English? Um, and, uh, you know, but the, the uh, audience for a um, subtitled film is assumed to be small as opposed to an audience yeah. for a, you know, an English language film. And he wanted to do it in Spanish. So, um, so he could do, I don't know, oh, there was one he did a, about a subway monster that he did, you know, and then there's Hellboy. So those he did in English uh, and other things later in English, but he wanted to do things in Spanish. So he um, accepted that they weren't going to necessarily be, um, you know, produced with the full force of some of his other films. And I think this kind of takes us full circle to the the assumptions that, let's say, the folks who hold the keys, right? Yes. Um, make about what what audiences will and won't tolerate. And you yes. know, there, sometimes it's backed up by data. We're like, well, we've got these sales figures that tell us whatever. Um, and sometimes it's backed up by, you know, I've been in this business for 30 years and my gut tells me this. Um, right. But the reality of it is, whether it's backed up by guts or by data, it's always backed up by the context of of the work itself. And what, what I mean by that is, if Guillermo del Toro is 
you know, if, if he, as an extraordinarily accomplished and respected filmmaker, um, has to push to have a language, be, have, have a, a film appear in his native language, and there's not that trust in it uh, being successful, in a lot of ways that says more about the market that he's being asked to operate within. Like, of course you don't have the data that supports that there's an audience for this because you keep not putting that stuff out there that would generate a sense of whether or not there is the audience. Uh, Right. I mean, that was the same question with Black Panther, right? Right. Um, Can we have a Black superhero (laughs) from Africa, um, you know, helm of film, a Marvel film, and will audiences, you know, all over the world go and see it? It's the the same question. Can can we see this, um, you know, Black man as a universal, uh, you know, superhero? And the answer was actually yes. (laughs) Oh, you know, so... um, uh, and then after that film, you know, lots of things shifted, you know, because yeah, there was, you know, there was one, there was one person who was in charge of the Marvel movies, the guy at the top before Feige who made that decision. He, he, not only did he say that you couldn't have a black Panther movie, you also couldn't have a female lead, uh, that the audience just wouldn't be there. And it wasn't until yeah. they got rid of him that they were able yep. to do movies like black widow uh, yep. uh, Black Panther, uh, right. uh, Captain Marvel. They had to get rid of that Captain, guy first. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, those things, we've seen it, I think we're, we, there's, we're in a, a period of an embarrassment of riches, right? And thinking about, again, Redwood and Wildfire first having been uh, small press published in, in the earlier about ten about ten years ago, um, versus where we are now. If we think about everything that's transpired since then to help prove that there is a hungry readership out there and a hungry yeah. audience, yeah, um, it's there, there. There are lots of directions I think that we can point to say that these are these are some of the artists who have helped make things these things. Oh happen. yeah. Yeah, um, we can lay a lot of the credit to the feet of certain actors. We can lay a lot of credit, I think, to you know, in the world of horror, Jordan Peele. I think is an enormous yep. difference maker um, right. for opening up the idea that there is something intrinsically horrifying that speaks to not just a black audience, but, but to, to everyone. Something intrinsically horrifying within our world that right. if you can just tweak people's antenna to make them realize. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that, it's, yeah. that it's in the air we breathe. Yeah, I, I also think people like Cherie Renee Thomas, who published yes. um, uh, Dark Matter in 2000, um, and, and actually even me publishing Redwood and Wildfire. So all, all of the people who kept persevering and publishing and, you know, showing up and uh, supporting one another. So, um, uh, you know, like Tana Narive Du, who, you know, is a big horror um marvelous maurice (laughs) you know so all of these yeah um all of these people who i think are all in cherie's books (laughs) um and um people like nalo hopkinson um you know just um really just you know going out there not giving up persevering i mean that's what i've said to uh, lots of people like you know i've been writing for a long time i'm you know you know, but and I invited all these people to Smith College. I featured them on this. I supported everything that I could, and so I think there was a real network of people, you know, consistently doing that work, um, so that you know, you know, now oh, well, we'd like writers. They're there, 
they've been trained. They've had like writing groups. (laughs) They've had, you know, a chance to talk with one another and support one another. Cherie made a community so that you could talk to other writers who were at your level or who were above your level or at the side of your level or whatever, but who could challenge you um, so that you could write um, your best work because you were in conversation with other people, like dealing with some of the questions and issues and thoughts and possibilities that you were. So you weren't alone, um, just, you know, like banging it out and thinking, nobody cares, nobody understands, no, you know. Um, so we made that community so that when something like Jordan Peele, when Get Out or or Black Panther or or whatever, some big a film comes out or when, you know, N.K. Jemison is writing um, or when, you know, Nettie Okorafor is writing. There are people who have been around and who can like, yeah, we know what's what's up and we can, you know, basically like boost the signal. Um, and we can also understand and analyze what it is you're working on. So I think all of those things make this moment that we're in right now, you know, a, a, yeah. a rich moment. I mean, they'll also equally important to the the community and communities that have come into being over the last several years uh, for for the folks who have needed them or have felt like they didn't have a space uh, Mm. where where Mm -hmm. they could be listened to in that way elsewhere. It's important for them to know that like this, this isn't stuff that just sort of like sprang out of nowhere. Um, I mean, it's not just that it goes back to Octavia. It goes back so much farther than that. Like it goes back to W.B. Du Bois uh, and Darkwater and, um, and so much else. There's there's this sort of foundational infrastructure of imagining different histories, different futures, different possibilities, uh, different realities that, Everyone as human beings is equally entitled to, but everyone's mm-hmm. human experience brings them to differently. Right. And and I'm, I'm in the theater, so there's a long tradition of that in the theater. Um, so theater isn't as, as, you know, segregated, I shall say, as right. uh, literature. So, you know, speculative theater. I mean, you know, if you think of Shakespeare, no one says, oh, Midsummer Night's Dream, fantasy. <laughs> It's just Midsummer Night's Dream. It's just another Shakespeare play, you know. Um, So I think what you have um, as a, you know, like The Day of Absence, which is a play uh, from the 60s where all the black people disappear out of town. Um, And it's played by um, black actors in whiteface. So they play all the white people who are trying to figure out what what happened to all the black people. Um, And it's a great science fictional play. Um, And it was, you know, very popular. Um, at, you know, so I have a whole, you know, a, a string of plays that people wrote um, that were like horror or science fiction, um, but were just plays. They were, they were, they were either musicals or comedies or tragedies or whatever. But they, you know, um, get folded in. Um, so that tradition has also supported. Um, well, supported me because that's what I was doing. And everybody kept saying, you should read Octavia Butler because of the kinds of plays I liked. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I think that undercurrent and everybody was, you know, watching Star Trek. (laughs) And so you had people like Sun Ra, you know, who had space is the place. Um, So you have a whole long tradition of of musical uh, Afrofuturism. Um, or African futurism as well, um, where people yeah. were envisioning, you know, you know, like the future that they wanted to live in. Mm-hmm. This is um, it's exciting times here. So yes, 
I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw things into a slightly different direction here because we're going to we need to be talking about other things that have brought us joy, not just the present moment, but our picks of the week. Um, so, Patrick, can you hit the music? Picks of the week. So, yes, I can. There you go. <laughs> Do you want to kick us off on this one here? Sure. I my pick is very simple. Uh, it's Halo on Paramount Plus. Okay. I I enjoyed almost everything about it. There's there's two things that bugged me, and it's been a couple weeks since the premiere episode dropped on Paramount Plus. So uh, as of this recording, when this drops, uh, as we're actually recording, it was yesterday. But anyway, um, okay. the two things that bugged me, they. The CGI version of Master Chief okay. walking and jumping looked stupid. <laughs> it just looked awful. I can't believe with the amount of money that they spent on this show that they couldn't have done a better job with that. It just looked awful. That's number one. And number two, uh, taking his helmet off, which oh. I don't think he's ever done in the games ever. But it's the Hollywood thing, right? The actor has to be able to take their helmet off. You have to see their face, otherwise they can't they can't, can't be uh, qualified yeah. for awards. Yeah. So uh, towards the end of the episode, he takes his helmet off. It's like, did they not watch The Mandalorian? Yeah, could slow walk that a little more. Yeah. <laughs> they could they could have waited six or seven episodes to do that, um, but yeah. no, they did it in the first episode. So those two things bugged me but other than that i felt like it was it was really well done it was better than i thought it was going to be yeah andrea i I imagine you must have a thousand opinions and reactions as a theater-minded person about all the perils of trying to take something that is not normally theatrical in presentation and trying to translate it but that is that's probably like a whole other podcast that's a whole other podcast i actually wrote redwood and wildfire as a screenplay um first and then i translated it from the screenplay it's a great uh outline to make it a novel so there you go you're actually the second person we've had on as a guest who has had that experience before yeah Yeah. oh who else that's a um, I am deeply embarrassed that I do not remember his name, but he is an Irish playwright who, ah. um, who, who wrote a play and, uh, it just didn't find traction as a fiction play, but yeah. Yeah. Neil Sharpson. Well yeah. done. Ah, yeah, great. Look at this guy right here. Um, so, <laughs> this is, this the, is so, so 10,000 reasons why Patrick's in charge. No, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. Hold on. Back up, back up. Cause, yeah, yeah. cause you're giving Andrea false, false information here. I usually don't remember anybody's name. Anybody's. <laughs> okay. Period. So, I mean, you're batting a thousand for remembering the name when I don't. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah, so there you yeah, go. Nice job. So, yeah. so Andrea, what is your pick? Well, I've been doing some reviewing, um, and I've been watching Being Human, which is a British um, uh, show in which uh, a ghost, a vampire, and a werewolf all live together. Um, and, and, and you are watching the BBC version. You're not watching these. The yeah, I'm not watching sci-fi. the. No, I'm watching the BBC okay. version. That is uh, a better version. At, that's a better that's a version. Much better version. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm really enjoying it. And I, I watched it, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago when it came out. Um, I guess it was 10 years ago. And I'm surprised at what I remember. So I, I, I like to do the review. I thought, oh, I like this. And then I'm, uh, you know, but I, I didn't remember like the whole second season. I was like, whoa, I didn't remember this. So, you know, oh my God, you know, so, and I'm just enjoying it. Um, like, wow, this is, deeply impressing me. Um, so I, I'm really enjoying that what can seem like a joke, you know, a, a vampire and a werewolf and a ghost all live together. And um, and they turned it into a really amazing, um, you know, I, I just think entertaining and exciting um, and heartrending at times um, series. So with, with, a, yeah, with a few exceptions, I always feel like the American adaptation waters it down. I think I tried to watch the American adaptation, and then I went, "Oh, I, I, I want the British people." So I, <laughs> so I didn't get, I didn't get much traction there um, at yeah. all. Yeah. So, yeah, this feels like the serial numbers have been filed off. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So, all right, my, I'm, I've got a book for this week. I mean, specifically, re, uh, listeners know that I, I tend to do almost all of my reading on audiobooks. So, this one is an audiobook uh, experience for me, but still highly recommend whether you want to pick it up in paper form or, or ebook form or audiobook. And I feel like I'm very slow on the draw on this one. So, my apologies, but uh, I'm almost a year since this book came out, and it, it took a little while for it to rise to the top of my TBR. And now I just regret that I didn't do it sooner. It's uh, P. Jelly Clark's The Ma- a Master of Gin. Oh, wonderful. I, yeah. Yeah, which I'm really loving having read uh, the novelette, The uh, Haunting of Tramcar uh, 015, um, which is a really great starting place if you if you want um, a, a fun, engaging, like three-hour reading experience that kind of uh, gets you into the world. But you don't really need it. Um, you know, Clark knows what he's doing and is is – letting you into this alternative history, um, middle 20th century vision of Egypt uh, as if it had sort of risen as a power unto itself uh, with, you know, having thrown off the shackles of colonialism much earlier uh, in its history and and sort of asserted its identity in a very different way. Um, Fueled, of course, by by gin, as one does. Um, So, in any case, it's been a wonderful experience. The, the narrator's great. Uh, I highly recommend it. And I love Ring Shout as well. Just all of his yes. stuff. Yes. We had uh, we actually um, had Fenderson on, um, gosh, about like six or eight months ago uh, for um, for his, his uh, A Master of Gen. And uh, I had just finished Ring Shout before having him on. So the poor man had come on to talk about his novel. And I, I just like wanted to do nothing but tell him about his last thing. Because yes. I'm a mess. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, Andrea, it's been wonderful talking to you. I feel like um, I still will never fully understand the depths of what a multi-ethnic horse opera is. Oh and so I guess I really just gotta, I just gotta go in with both feet and figure it out for myself. Um, yeah. Where can we find you and all of your cool stuff out here in, in the podcast verse and the, the internet and everything else? Oh, okay. Well, um, I'm at AA hair uh, on Twitter. I'm at Andrea. You could just do Andrea Hairston on Facebook and I'm Andrea So that's, 
where I am. I'm, I'm, since I'm writing and teaching, I'm pretty much writing and teaching. So I'm not on social media as much as I hope to be when it's warm again, <laughs> when school is out. Um, but that's where I am. Fantastic. Thanks for being with us here today. Thank you for having me. This was great. Spring will be springing. Wait, springing? Eh, I don't know. But anyway, it's happening soon, and that means it's time for a new bumper. First on the agenda, Beyond the Trope. Giles and Michelle over at Beyond the Trope should be scratching their ears and wondering who's been talking about them. It's me! I've been talking about them here and in other places like Capricorn 42. Why? Because they have a pretty nifty little podcast. They talk to authors and artists just like we do and release episodes on Tuesdays, just like we do. So if you subscribe to both our podcasts, it's like getting a double feature every week. In other news, I mentioned before Capricorn 42. That's because Tracy and I had a lot of fun there, especially spending time with several of our patrons. Becoming a patron doesn't just mean you get to hang out with us at conventions, although you might. It means also getting access to things like monthly hangouts, a patron's-only episode of the podcast every month, and even a private Facebook group where we talk about extra nerdy things. It's as close to the green room for the show as you can get without, you know, actually being in the green room. Check out patreon.com slash functionalnerds for more information about becoming a backer. What's next? Well, I'll probably have to record another bumper. But that's easily days away, or more, who knows? <laughs> time, time is so stupid. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right, how about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs>